0: You're listening to the Theology Mom podcast. And now, here's Theology Mom, Krista Bontrager.
1: So we're continuing in our series on Christian values in changing times. And really, this, this could be more appropriately t- titled Judeo-Christian values because really these are ideas, that, as we've been talking about, are rooted and grounded in the book of Genesis, as we've been talking all along. So I was reflecting while I was on the trip, I thought, you know what, I should just do a little opening and talk about a few things um, just to touch base as 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 we're continuing this series. And um, there was a talk that I listened to uh, at ETS that was really making this point. And I thought, man, this just fits so good into our series. And that is that our culture is make, uh, has making a very huge assumption, and you're going to notice this, As you watch the news, as you look at social media, is that there is this grand assumption in our culture that being kind to others is the right or the good thing to do. It's good to be kind. Now we have problems with bullying and all this stuff, but the reason that we think bullying is a problem is because we actually think that there is something right, there's rightness about being kind to people. And the whole idea of what our culture is calling social justice have you ever heard this term? Social justice is premised on the idea that being being good to people, being kind to people is 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 the right thing to do and this is what our culture has called um uh, social justice, and this is I think important to point out that this is an assumption that we make in our culture and it hasn't always been the case. We looked at some examples. We looked at William Wilberforce last week and how he changed his culture because he started enacting initiatives in parliament to eliminate slavery, to eliminate child labor laws, to um, there were many other things that he did as, as a philanthropist that were based on the idea that humans are created in the image of God. And this is a deeply Judeo-Christian idea. But I think it's important for us to understand that this has not always been our assumption, nor is it the assumption of many other cultures. But that treating others with dignity and respect are distinctly Christian ideas. This, it flows out of our worldview, and so, but we're not always aware of it. You ever go to someone's house? uh, Are you like my husband? How many of you are like my husband, like you're not a pet lover? Do we have any not pet lovers? Nobody? No, all right, Shell is a bracelet. He says, I'm not a pet lover. But you walk into somebody's house and there's like the smell, right? And you don't even have to see the animal sometimes, but there's the smell, right? But the person who lives there doesn't necessarily smell the smell, do they? Because they've become so accustomed to it. And that's co- kind of what culture is like. We don't smell our own smell, and but when somebody comes into our culture, they say things like, "Whoa, this is messed up," <laughs> you know. And Or we go to another culture, like we had the example of Cambodia a few weeks ago with human trafficking. you remember that? And we all kind of sat here aghast at the, at, at the culture, right? But for them, what is that? That's normal. They don't smell their own smell. But when, when Christians from other countries come here, they look at certain aspects of our culture and they're like, whoa, what is that? It's like walking into the house where there's the smell, <laughs> Right. And, are, are we getting the picture here? So this is the thing about culture is that we often don't look at ourselves. We don't smell our own smell. And so part of what I've been trying to do in this in this series is get us to help to, to be more aware of certain cultural assumptions that we just all take for granted. And one of the smells that we don't smell is the idea that it's a good thing to be kind to people and that social justice is a thing. And our, our culture just takes that for granted. But another smell in our culture is that all morality is relative, right? There's no objective moral standard except being kind. We've kind of all agreed that being kind is maybe better than being a bully, right? But... We are steeped in moral relativism as a culture. We want to determine through convention and popular agreement and vote of what's right and what's wrong. But we, we have this assumption in our culture that it's part of what's good, true, and beautiful is that kindness is, is better than being a bully are you with me yeah. but we don't have the objective standard necessarily on which to base that on and so we live in this 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 situation where these two things have kind of been pulled apart in our culture and we don't often think about it and so when we think about words like ought and should what should we do that's a that's a statement of morality, but where are we getting that idea of should, of shouldness, if you will. So I'm going to play a little video right now. This is not a Christian video. This is, uh, I don't know what this is from, but it's it's put together um, about um, Nairobi, the schools in Nairobi, Kenya. And so here we are peering into another culture, and we're going to see what the smell is there. And we're going to see what they're doing, and then we're going to kind of talk about this and this is related to the conversation we had about gender equality so they're teaching girls how to say no to men they start teaching this program in the schools in Nairobi but they're teaching both the boys and the girls they're teaching girls to defend themselves and they're teaching boys to understand the concept of consent Okay, so now there's a lot of statements of shouldness in this video, aren't there? It says, you know, I want to be prepared to do the right thing. Well, how do I know what the right thing is? In their cultural context, something else was telling them what was right. But now they're trying to make some cultural shifts to say, no, rape is not right. Consent is right. Well, how do we arrive at that? Are you with me? Do you see how it's, how do we know that something ought to be right? And it's, a, I have a little screen capture of the, the last frame of the video there. I circled the word should. Share this video if you think more schools should follow Nairobi's lead. Well, should implies that there is some kind of standard of rightness and wrongness that would compel me to share this video because I think that more schools need to be like this. And that that somehow is a more virtuous picture of gender relations than rape culture. But if there's no objective standard, and we've just sort of said that morality is just our social convention and what we've agreed on... So what gives us the right to go to Nairobi, Kenya and say, here's what you should be doing? Aren't we disrupting their culture? So we read several times, we've made mention of the situation in the book of Acts. When we, I've made the point repeatedly that the gospel is inherently culturally disruptive. Why is that? Because we are bringing an element of shouldness to the culture. And we are saying that gender equality is a distinctly Judeo-Christian value, right? And that other cultures who do not respect gender equality or do not respect racial equality ought to change. And is anyone else like, can you see the the uncomfortable nature of this? If we live in in a society where morality is all relative, and it's just based on what we agree on, then, then gender equality isn't any more virtuous or any better than rape culture. It's just more people believe in it. But what if more people believe rape culture is right? Does that make it right? Yeah. That assumes that something like Christianity is true, that the Bible is true. is true. God yeah. is true. truth. Yeah. So there's that's, no way around that. But that's, that is an assumption that, that our culture is not comfortable with. But they're borrowing. Bar- do, do you see now? Are you starting to see like what I've been saying all along? They're borrowing from our worldview. Right. Do you see how that's happening? They're borrowing from the idea that Genesis 1 is true. That humans are both created in the image of God, male and female. That all humans, all races, both genders are created in the image of God. That is a big assumption. But if you don't have that, I don't honestly know what foundation you have for the entire concept of social justice. Other than it's a social convention, a majority of people have agreed that being kind is better than being a bully. And But I still don't know what our legal standing is or our moral standing is to import that to Nairobi, Kenya. Part of what I'm trying to get at here is in creating your conversations with people in your oikos, this is a realm of, of overlap that our worldview of something we can agree on. Many... Uh, many people who are not Christians think social justice is a good thing, but they don't know why. Mm-hmm. And what I've been trying to equip you and train you to do this fall is to begin to understand that these, are deeply, these, are, these ideas are deeply rooted in the Bible and in Scripture. And this is an area of agreement with many people in our culture. They might not want to be ready to have a conversation about Jesus and, and who he was and that whole thing. But you can at least find common ground at Christmas time and Thanksgiving with even probably the most cantankerous liberal at your table that social justice is a good idea. And, a <laughs> but, but why? This is my question is why is that a good idea? And so I'm trying to help you find some common ground here that 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 all of these ideas that we've been talking about in class as being, hey, you know, like gender equality, like rape culture, that's not okay, you know? But that's a judgment that we are making about at moral actions. But if that is not, we have to then justify why we th- think that that judgment is... Legitimate. Yeah, Lemise. What about the idea, I don't know if it's right or not, that that we innately know that we're
0: created to know what's right and
1: wrong, whether you know the Bible or not. Exactly. So that is a part of what we call um, general revelation or common grace, as I've talked about it earlier this fall, that there is something innate as a result of being created in the image of God, that there is something in us that inherently knows our equality between men and women. And when that's violated, this is why I think that like this whole idea that even women who are uh, in rape culture, when they undergo sexual trauma, it's still traumatic to them because there's something inherent in our nature, the way that God has set things up, that that trauma is not okay. And, so I think that it is absolutely part of our, our, the scaffolding of our soul, if you will, our framework as a, as a human being to know that these things are right. And this is why many in our culture think that they are right. They just don't know. They don't tie it into the, the worldview that we have. I'm going to go over here and then I'll.
0: is very important for me. Sure. In the department. And when I hear social justice, for me, it has to be generic. It cannot be specific. When I try to take care of the pain of my clients, I don't go and discuss Buddhism or Hinduism. Right. What is your need right now? So for me, social justice, it, it, it has the should as well, but it's not necessarily based on religion deeply. Generically yes. Yes. Because we look at the victim point of view, to be a victim, pain is pain, whether you're Christian or Jewish or Muslim. exactly. Yeah, so that's a universal feeling. Uh, justice is a universal desire. You want justice to be and and, and pain, pain, victim, and just so this is what's behind yep. social justice for me on my day to day job.
1: I think it's a beautiful way of articulating the same idea that I'm sure, have have yeah, beliefs, yeah, though, for sure.
0: But I don't go to my high book, you have to think um, exactly. You know, some people say, well, we should have only Christian values. And I say, really, which ones? Mm-hmm. Amish? Yeah. Presbyterian? Pentecostal? Should you speak in tongues? So, so when we establish policy for the counter Los Angeles, yeah. I, don't, I don't touch that. Not at all. Because she might speak in tongues, but I don't. Yeah. Mm-hmm. She might roll on the floor It's like, I feel the Holy Spirit. I feel in a very different way.
1: Yeah. <laughs> so, I <don't laughs>
0: want to policy. I don't like county policy based on that. Yeah. So it, it is true that every time uh, a culture goes to another culture, the Hebrews have done the same thing to the Canaanites, you know, when they come with the, the laws and, of course, they do human sacrifice. And the Jew says, well, not a good idea. Human sacrifice is not good. So I can see Christianity doing the same thing as the next step. So I just want to throw Uh, that in.
1: And I'm so glad you brought that point up because if I haven't made that clear, I want to make that clear, is that what I'm not suggesting is that we need to Christianize the culture. What I am suggesting is that these are values that are universal to humanity. And that part of what it means to be a human being is to value the Inherent dignity, value and worth of other human beings to want to relieve suffering, to even use the word victim is to assume a moral standard of some kind, that there is a victim and a perpetrator, that there is a right and there there was somebody who was who was wronged and there was someone who was wrong. Okay. so I'm not suggesting that we need to have Christian values as law. They already are law in many regards because we do value the universality of the inherent dignity, value, and worth of human beings. What I'm trying to help us understand internally as Christians is where do these ideas come from? They come from Genesis. And that this is part of our heritage as Christians to understand this. Now, our culture borrows these things from us. And we have many laws. The whole idea that I've been trying to Uh, circle back to is the idea of human rights it it is a deeply judeo-christian idea and the the human rights statement says that there's a fundamental human rights of dignity dignity and worth as regards to race sex language or religion this is the universal nature of humanity But this is not a Christian document, but it's borrowing from the Judeo-Christian worldview to come up with these statements. Are you with me? So I'm trying to help us clarify all of this because I feel like I was watching some stuff back and I thought, you know, I don't know if I've made this completely clear yet. So this is is my attempt to, to give you the why of what we're doing and that this is part of our conversations with other people, we can have great common ground with anybody who cares about relieving the pain and suffering of other people, that that is a noble and virtuous thing to do. But how do we decide what the rightness or wrongness, who's the victim, who's the, who's the victimizer? That, in, that assumes some level of a law, and a law requires a lawgiver of sorts, whether that's in the human realm and in the human court system, or I would say in the transcendent realm between heaven and earth. As I said the, from the beginning, that the gospel, when the gospel goes out, it is going to be inherently disruptive to cultures. Yeah. And I'm outlining for you some practical examples along the way. But by saying that this is the right, thing to do you are making some powerful assumptions that that the bible is true that what the bible puts forth is true that our worldview is true these and we spent all last year talking about why does it matter that christianity is true it's so that then we can have a conversation about morality but we can't just talk about morality if christianity might isn't even true because we're inserting ourselves into cultures and we are being potentially destructive to certain cultural practices. But as we saw in the Cambodia example, they had a different set of assumptions. For them, a girl was, could be useful because she could be sold and I could get money from that. Okay. So it cannot be just, just some sort of minimalistic harm principle because every culture can define that differently. This is why we need some sort of objective moral standard. And what I'm trying to kind of provoke your thinking about is that there is this, I see this so much in conservative circles, that social justice is this weird liberal idea. And it's like, well, we don't want to talk about social justice because that's what Democrats do and that's what liberals do. And I'm a conservative and I don't want to have anything to do with that. And I'm just going to protect my people, and protect my privilege. But that is not a distinctly Christian way of going about things. And as I've said all along, we are, we are people of the book first. We are not Americans first. And so sometimes we're going to have some parting of the ways with maybe our political affiliation because of instructions that the Bible gives us. And I've been trying to outline some of these these issues related to, to the universal human condition. And I'm suggesting that there are some things of relieving suffering is more virtuous than inflicting suffering. And that that gender equality is more virtuous than rape culture. And that racial equality is more virtuous than racism. These are distinctly Christian, Judeo-Christian ideas that are rooted and grounded in the image of God. This is not a liberal conservative conversation. This is a Christian worldview conversation versus the secular worldview. And I think that they borrow from our worldview and I don't need to tell them all the time like, hey, you need to be, we're only going to hire Christian social workers, you know. That's not what this is. But that's part of the robustness of scripture is that it has these certain universal ideas that our culture is still, I think, kind of borrowing because we've been in the background of the, the culture building for so long. Now, I have a whole other theory about why we're seeing so many mass shootings And this is in the realm of opinion, but I think that as um, hardcore atheism and secularism continues to grow and that the Christian worldview that's been sort of lurking in the background there begins to recede, the idea of rightness and wrongness and violating the image of God is going to become more acceptable. And I think that this is why we're seeing this increase in so many of these mass shootings is because... As the understanding of the universal n- nature of the human condition goes down, and that that um, there's more of an emphasis on the individual and and my personal worldview and the more that relativism takes hold that that there is less um, there's less constraints on Violating. Remember, we talked about how murder is the deepest violation of the image of God, and from um, Genesis chapter nine. And this has certainly been the project in academia for the last 125 years of how do we separate morality from Christianity? Well, I think we're living in that now. Is that this is our current reality of where we are? Is but that and things in the academic world take several decades to kind of trickle down into the real world. But this has been the project of Nietzsche and others for the last 125 years. Of can we separate these two things? And I think that really what you're left with is social convention and agreement. You know, a majority of people say these are the kind things to do. This is bullying. This is right. This is wrong. I and mean, there's no, more, there's no objective, objective standard, and that's our current reality. Yeah, right here. And I think it's important also to understand that Christianity in the West has its own unique problems that were avoided largely in Christianity in the East. That Issues like gender equality and racial issues in the Eastern Church were not the same types of issues that they were in the Western Church. So I'm always hesitant to say to use American Christianity as the standard for Christianity, and that's not I I try to always present in this class a global and historical version of Christianity. Are you guys getting that yet? (laughs) Because um, American Christianity is highly anomalous. We're very influential, but we're highly anomalous. And so it's important to always take a step back and look at things globally and historically. And while it is true that in the West, racism and slavery looked a certain way, in the Eastern Church, it was not that issue. So I'm always careful about... Falling into that stereotype of saying that, the and we're going to talk in a few weeks about the issue of the handicapped and the dignity for the handicapped and why that that is also a very distinctly uh, an idea that's distinctly tied to the image of God. And um, both my husband and I have um, people that are mentally disabled in our family, and that's that's a big conversation for our family and our 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 uncles and our aunts. And, and and that is something that touches both of us. But that is intricately tied to the image of God. And why do, why do we see adoption as a valuable thing, of adopting even a handicapped child, that even a handicapped child still has inherent dignity, value, and worth? And that is because we believe they're created in the image of God and that they deserve... Good treatment, the treatment of the elderly. Why do we think that it's that elder abuse is wrong, or that that uh, we shouldn't just kill people when they stop functioning uh, and being a productive member of society? You know, why do we have hospice care? Um, we have ho- many hospice care facilities are run by Christians because Christians have this unique idea that people should have dignity until death, and that they should be treated with care and concern. This, these are all ideas that are tied into the image of God. And so what I'm hoping to do in this series, and I'm hoping that you're starting to, to understand that this is not a, an issue of liberal versus conservative. This is not an issue of political parties, that we need to be distinctly Christian in how we think about these issues and the, the, the concept of the image of God is something that touches many aspects of our culture. And it ought to compel us to have some conversations and to build some bridges with some people that maybe don't share our worldview. But we could have a conversation about like, well, why do you think that that's it, it's noble or good to be kind? Where do you get that idea? Why is gender equality? a good idea. Why is that better than rape culture? You know? Yeah. And I got in a lot of hot water for saying that the second week of this series. <laughs> but it's weird. It's kind of a yeah. Movie. But part of, part of this whole conversation is that aspect of freedom that part of being created in the image of God all the way back in the garden of Eden is how did God set it up? Did he set it up as a coercive system that he was going to force Adam and Eve to obey? No, he gave them the freedom to choose sin, to basically make a choice of what was good, true, and beautiful apart from him. He set up a system of freedom, but freedom assumes that we have the ability to make wrong choices. Have you ever ever been a parent? And like your child makes choices, you're thinking, I don't know if I'm down with that. I don't think that's such a great idea. Right. But you there comes a point in your child's life where coercion doesn't work. It works okay when they're five, not when they're 18. Right. And then you have to kind of let them make some choices and some mistakes. And and this is how Heavenly Father deals with us. Is he doesn't coerce us into? How many of you have ever made bad life choices? Yeah. Okay. So we've all made we've all made choices that we think we look back it's upon them. Yeah. It's like you know, that's cool. No, there were consequences to those choices. Some of those consequences you can never get out of, right? And they endure to this day. Some of them dissolve over time, but others don't. But But Father, in his love for us, doesn't coerce us to worship him. He doesn't coerce us to be in a relationship with him. He invites us. You invite your children to to a a higher way of of living and to better relationship, and you invite them into something, but you can't coerce them into it. And part of religious freedom is that there is this idea that we live in a free society, so there's free choices to worship, and not everyone's going to show up and worship the same way, right? But that is part of of being created in the image of God, is having that freedom and making free choices. Now, we have laws over some moral choices. Like, we we have... laws about rape. If you, if you rape someone, you should go to jail. Now, it's not always easy to prosecute, and there's, there's complications with that, and sometimes there's unjust systems, but the, ideally, there, there's laws in the books that say here's the punishment, but we don't punish people about what religion they are. We, we, we allow for that. Now, as long as they're not violent, they're not killing each other, we allow people... I went to Texas. Well, if you think like... Texas is the Bible Belt, and, like, everybody there is white. Like, I, I have a reality check for you. It's, to, it's not like that. I mean, there were – I encountered uh, – I went to Target to buy some makeup. The makeup gal at, at, in the makeup section at Target was a Hindu. And then the clerk was a Muslim uh, when I went to Kohl's. And, you know, I'm driving down the street and there's there's way more Muslims in Dallas, Texas, I think, than there are here. So this is this is part of living in a free society. But we have laws against violence and we have laws against like, okay, here's the line. We're not going to we're not going to cross this line. But but freedom is another aspect of being created in the image of God, because way back in in the Garden of Eden, that's how God set it up and we've been talking about this paradigm of creation fall redemption glorification through the whole the whole class this is really what the bible's all about in a way and it takes time because when you're changing a culture you're changing people's emotions you're changing their passions you're inviting them to realign their emotions with a completely different idea and on the street that is something that just really touches us deeply and I think that this is where Christians who have lived in the Middle East could be very useful in conversation with how they have dealt with that for centuries Mm -hmm. and I think that we have a tendency to just default into a posture of fear about that when we see that because it's different but I think that it's helpful to talk to uh, Christians who have come from a Syrian context, an Egyptian context, that they have dealt with living side by side with Muslims for centuries. And they have a lot of wisdom that they could be giving us if we could get in conversations with them about how they've already been dealing with that and that maybe fear isn't the best way to go. But I think that that is a very important part of our heritage as Christians to think more globally about our, our, our faith and this is one of the the values I'm always trying to bring out in this class, is to not mistake American practice and our our American smell of Christianity with Christianity. Because Christianity is a religion that's been around for 2,000 years, and it's been already lived out in a lot of different cultural contexts. And many of them have been successful. Some of them have been mistake. We've made mistakes. But when we look at things more historically, I find it very helpful and more balanced. And our tendency is to think of American Christianity first. And I think that's a fundamental mistake. These are all very important questions. So I'm glad I made a space for us to, to sort of process where we are kind of mid-series here of Like, look, this is the big picture of what I'm trying to accomplish here. And we have enough information now under our belts. If I had told you all this at the beginning, you'd be like, what is she talking about? And so we had to get some information together. And now we can just sort of sit back and process it a little bit of why is this important? Why are we having these these conversations? And hopefully you're you're getting that. And this is a little bit about some of you are new to the class. This is how I teach, is I give you information and then we get to the why in a little while because we have to get some information first. And this is a a lot of the discovery process that I lead people through. I don't tell people like, here's everything up front <laughs> you know. That's not how that works. All right, Laura, and then I'll come back over here. Yeah. Um. You are? I'm so glad to hear you say that. Stand in your office there. <laughs> yeah. how to say that better. Yeah. Um, it's hard for me to leave out of the equation the end game. Mm-hmm.
0: And that is, I am mean, I right? But that's where all my heart and all my soul goes, to the end game. I want these people to be in heaven. Right? Yeah. So... I mean, I hear you saying we need to know where it comes from so we can
1: stand more firm in a historical Christianity and yeah. be able to, to witness. Um, yeah, so it, it's just, sorry, I just, it's just a thought. <laughs> it's frustrating because we're talking about all that. Like, so tell them about Jesus. Well, so, and you can. Right and, away, and, right? Yeah, and so this and is. When we say leave
0: Christianity out of it, just, you know. You know okay, okay.
1: Person, and I, agree, I agree. that Absolutely, we have to do that. Sure. So, I must feel like I have this agenda always. Yeah. And I do have
0: this agenda. Always. And I, I think I'm that I'm that really
1: that's just wanting to help this person through their suffering. I want to be an And that's a, such a, that's a great point. Yeah, no, it's such a great point. I'm so glad you brought oh, that up. No, because no. in about a hundred years ago, how many of you have ever heard the term the social gospel? You ever heard this term? Yeah, okay, so the social oh, gospel. Yeah. The social gospel. I mean in a hundred years ago, this was the big the big question was could we um, make the case for appeasing people's suffering? And is that adequate? Is that an adequate presentation of the gospel? And a 100 years ago, that's really what the American church was dealing with, with their mission boards. Um, and it became a, a point of very sharp division mm-hmm. because there were mission boards who said, um, and, and some of you who are on the older end of the spectrum probably remember this and can have some appreciation for you can correct me if, if I get this wrong but that the, this is kind of what began to create um, what we now call liberals and fundamentalists or modernists and fundamentalists and um, the modernists really went down the path of the social gospel of let's relieve suffering let's let's clothe the poor feed the poor, um, and that that was almost the end in and of itself. Whereas the fundamentalists took more of the approach of, no, we need to be preaching the gospel. We got to, for lack of a better term, um, we got to get them through the four spiritual laws. We got to get them down the Romans road. We got to get them saved. And so this was kind of like the rescue mission approach of, well, you can get some food after you sit through the chapel service to hear the gospel presentation, all right? So there was a little bit of this bifurcation that happened. I think that there's a healthy correction that's happening right now in the American church where these that, that a, a truly full understanding of the gospel includes both mm-hmm. and that we can go and build a water well in Africa and also bring the Lord with that and bring the gospel with that. Water. Yes. The living water. I like that. Yeah. And so we, we, I think as evangelicals are undergoing kind of a healthy correction right now mm-hmm. where we're not going to just, um, we're, we're not going to not relieve people suffering. We're not going to say suffering doesn't matter because we just need to get people saved. We're saying, Hey, relieving suffering is also part of the gospel. Jesus says, you know, many times in the Gospels about the the that it's good, virtuous, and and beautiful to clothe the poor. I mean, this is part of what we were going to reflect on in the Good Samaritan um, parable. Is that it's it's good to he didn't just walk by the 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 man on the road and say, gosh. Hope it all works out for you. Jesus saves and then move <laughs> along. You know, he, he binds up his wounds. He, he takes him somewhere where he can get some care. And he's, he's engaging his, his dignity and his value and his worth. And but that doesn't overturn Jesus' other words that says, you know, that people, uh, the Great Commission. So there's loving your neighbor and the Great Commission. So we need both. And so yesterday we all delivered the turkeys, right? And so in a sense, delivering a turkey to a family in need, why are we doing that? That's part of dignity. It's our concept of our church. Our church's concept of dignity is that, hey, we think that even poor people who can't afford a meal should have some semblance of a, of a nice Thanksgiving dinner. So our church has come together and said, we're going to bless 300 families with the dignity of a box of, of food and a turkey and a, a store-bought pumpkin pie and some instant mashed potatoes and some other stuff, all right? Yeah, so we, we're saying that this is part of their dignity, right? Um, but as they were encouraging us yesterday, when, when you go out, you can always offer the people, like, hey, we're from Grace Church. You know, can we pray for you? Like, what is the need there? Yesterday, my husband and I, um, there was a lot of people who said no to prayer. They just wanted the food. But again, freedom is part of people's dignity. So we didn't force people into prayer. Well, we're going to pray for you anyways. Like, are you ready? I'm going to lay hands on you. You know, I mean, Yeah, you can't have the turkey until you listen to the four spiritual laws. You know, we didn't do that. All right. We, to, to us, there was dignity in, in just presenting the turkey in the name of Jesus and saying, We love you and we're here to serve you. And then, but we gave an invitation would you like prayer? And um, some people said yes. So we prayed for them. We prayed for one gal yesterday and she asked us to pray for her husband who's trying to recover from drug addiction. That's a hard moment. You're just standing in in the doorway. You've got like one minute to pray for her, and meet that need. And she's just really, you know, I, w- from what I could see in the house, there were three small children like this and below, and I don't know how many other kids were in that house. And she, you know, just got that. That's a struggle. Like that woman's in a hard situation. And you know, we didn't solve all her problems there in two minutes, but maybe she'll remember the kindness, and maybe she'll. She'll go to a church or maybe she'll come here or something. She'll just know that people who came to me in the name of Jesus loved me enough to bring me some food and they prayed for me in a difficult moment. That's part of bringing the kingdom near. When Jesus says the kingdom of God is near, it's not all about, like, hey, the four spiritual laws. There was healing the sick. There was casting out demons. There was raising the dead. There's feeding the poor, what we call social justice. That was all part of it, too. So... um Laura, I'm so glad you brought that up because to your point, I think that the fullest expression of the gospel, it has to be both. You know, I like what it says in 1 John. It says, you know, do you see that you have a neighbor in need, but you do nothing and you just say, peace, bless you. That, that's not the love of Christ. The re- and it says in the book of James that the religion that, that God loves is the one who helps widows and feeds orphans. So this is a part of our worldview as Christians. Well, I'm going to wrap it up here. I just kind of want to give you sort of a, a thumbnail of where we're going in the next few weeks. Uh, no class next week. It's Thanksgiving, so we're off. Um, and then December uh, 3rd and 10th, we're going to talk about questions related to being pro-life. And it's not going to be the typical stuff that you hear. I've, I think I've got some good things uh, to talk about there. Uh, we're going to talk about the dignity of the elderly, the handicapped, and the mentally disabled on the 17th. And then there's no class the 24th and the 31st. Actually, you know what, Bob? We might be we were kind of planning a vacation. Yes, yesterday, the 17th, there might be no there might be no class. We'll see what happens there. Um, then we're gonna I'm going to try to get um, a conversation about the scientific component. Um, and interview my friend Dr. Rana that we saw a few weeks ago in the the clip about Cambodia. Um, His expertise is in human origins, and there's some interesting questions related to science and the image of God that I would love to interview him on. Um, So I'm going to try to do that, and then I'm going to sort of wrap up this series with a talk about connection. Um, that we have part of what it means to be created in the image of God is to be created for connection with uh, with others and talking about how certain things in our culture are mitigating against that connection and are actually resulting in us being more and more isolated and harming our, our own dignity as human beings. So that's going to be kind of the how the series is going to go um, moving forward. And then I don't know what I'm doing after that. I got to talk to the Lord about it. Um, so... Uh, some, he'll, he'll, he'll tell me soon, and then I also just want to tell you again: we're excited about our anniversary party. So uh, please uh, mark that down so you can come. You're all invited, and uh, I think that um, Bob and I are—I I, kind of wrote the program while I was on at ETS. Yeah, and, so it's going to be—it's going to be fun. So we'd love to have you there to share share our joy. So uh, let me close this in prayer. Father, I thank you for. My brothers and sisters here and just wrestling and grappling with uh, these very important ideas um, it is just such a, a very relevant cultural conversation and and i ask that you would challenge us and to reveal places in our heart that um maybe where we have our own hang-ups where we feel like uh well you know this person i don't think they have as much dignity as these other people. And I ask that you would just reveal spaces in our heart where sometimes we covertly or silently um, violate other people's dignity and that you would bring us, uh, by highlighting those areas, to bring us to repentance because we don't want to um, be like the Pharisee or the scribe who just walked by the the, the man bleeding by the side of the road uh, we want to really bring your love everywhere we go and just help to mobilize us in our hearts that wherever we go, because the Holy Spirit lives in us, we are bringing your kingdom near and where we are, your presence is. And where your presence is, the kingdom of God is near. And just help us to see ourselves as ambassadors for your kingdom during this holiday season as we're interacting with a lot of friends and family that we don't normally see. Help us just to be inspired to love better and to love with our words and to find ways to build bridges in those conversations to bring you and to to make you known and bring your love near. In Jesus' name, amen.